This 12th chapter in the book of Romans really starts off a new section in the book. You can really, you can split the book of Romans into two parts. The first 11 chapters are very doctrinal. And from chapter 12 to the end of the book, they're more practical. You think of really the first 11 chapters. Most of them are verses which we can recite. For the very fact that they are doctrinal and that they assist us in bringing in important teachings, especially the teachings of the gospel. You think particularly of Romans 3, that well-known verse where we're told that all have sinned to come short of the glory of God. And in that chapter, that is the theme. It shows that we're all sinners in needing to be saved. And then chapter 4 goes on to talk about that there must not be any self-righteousness and that no self-righteousness or religious practice can ever save our soul. He uses the Old Testament example of Abraham. How many assumed that he was justified because of circumcision, but he was justified because the Scriptures testified that he believed in the Lord, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And then in chapter 5, we have the love and the grace of God. We think of that verse in Romans 5, verse 8, that but God commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. And even chapter 6, there's another well-known verse, that for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there we're told that sin has an eternal cost, that there is an eternity. And if there's sin within our lives, we're told that we will face the eternal death, that is to be cast forever in hell. But there is the but, the contrast. There is the gift of God, which is eternal life, which is not found in religious practices, but is found in the person and in the work of Christ, the Lord Jesus. And then really from chapter 7 to 11, there's more doctrines that apply to the Christian. In chapter 7, we have the Christian struggle with sin, doing the things which they shouldn't do. And there Paul confesses his own struggle with sin, the conflict that is in sin, the battle to live pure and holy lives before God. Chapter 8, we have the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit's operation in the, in the life of the believer, how he is our first witness of our conversion, how he molds us and what he would have us to be. And then from chapters 9 and 11, we have also the believer's election in Christ. But here in chapter 12, as I've said, we commence a new section, which is a lot more practical. We can tell that even by the opening verses of this chapter. And really, at the start of this, Paul seeks to lay down the Christian's conduct, what the Lord requires of us, how he would have us to conduct ourselves as Christians. And it's really that thought I want us to consider this morning, the Christian's conduct the Christian's conduct. And I want us to really take verses 1 and 2 as our text this morning. And I want you to notice with me firstly the Christian's conduct to God. The Christian's conduct to God. Paul lays this out really in the first one of our chapter. Where Paul says, I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. 
And there in that verse, Paul starts off with the word, I beseech you. And the word beseech, it really means to entreat, to call, uh, to, to invite, and really to express desire to an individual. And really, this is Paul, he's commencing this section with a, with a desire that what he's going to say, he wants you to hear it. He doesn't want you to miss this. And what he is going to say, he means it, and he desires it for the believers in Rome. He wants our full attention. And even at the very outset of that chapter, I want to say to you that God wants you to hear this. Paul says there, I beseech you therefore, brethren. And really, in effect, could we not say as it is God's word that God is saying to us, I beseech you. I beseech you. Take ear to what I have to say to you. This is God's invitation for us to Listen to what he has to say to us. And Paul here, he is addressing particularly the believers because he says in the, that verse, in the first one, he uses the word brethren. He's wanting the attention of his brethren. Those who are saved, those who are in the family of God, that is what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ. We are in the family of God as God is our own and personal heavenly father. And on what reason does Paul seek our attention? He says there in the first one that it is by the mercies of God. The mercies of God. You see, this is something that only the believer can understand because they have experienced the mercies of God. Particularly in salvation, but also throughout life they have known the mercies of God that has kept them and yet has also saved them. And really I want to say in this point of the first, Paul brings us back really to Calvary. And he reminds us here of the mercies of God. More particularly how God sent his son for us to die on the cross, to save us from eternal judgment. Who died as our substitute and our representative. Taking our sins upon himself and paying the penalty of our sins upon himself. He rose again from the dead for the assurance that Christ has completed his work. And we who are sinners through Christ's work can know the mercies of God. Paul says this by way of really introduction because he is seeking to bring forth a truth that the Christian must seek to implement. A key factor that must be found in the Christian in his conduct. And that is the fact that we are to be given over to God. We are to be given over to God. We are to be surrendered to God. Yes, many of us today that are believers, we could say, yes, we've surrendered to God. We've surrendered to God as our Savior. But I want to say there's only few that have surrendered to God as their Lord and Master. Only few have surrendered to God as their own Lord and Master, that whatever the Lord tells them to do, they'll do it. And wherever the Lord tells them to go, they'll go. Paul seeks to address the mercies of God firstly, before he comes in to tell how we are to be given to the Lord. It'd be very hard for Paul just to straight away say, Christian, you're to be given over to the Lord. What's the motivation behind giving yourselves to the Lord? It's considering the mercies of God. Remembering what God has done for us. 
and his wonderful mercies to us. Maybe that is true of us, that perhaps our lives are not what we should be. Many Christians have not surrendered and perhaps are afraid to even admit that they don't want to be given over to the Lord. Perhaps this morning there is a burden in your heart to be given over to the Lord, but there's a but in the sentence. There is something that holds you back from desiring to live a surrendered life to God. And with man there always is a but, because that means that there is always something that holds them back. And we should know what that is, that is sin that holds the believer back from surrendering to God. But I want to say that this verse is a verse that I remember God even used to speak to me before I went into college. I remember the Lord in three consecutive days was telling me to go and to serve him. And yet at the end of the week, I was saying, but, but I am too young, but I am too weak, but I am too inadequate. And yet the Lord even used this verse to remind me of the mercies of God. To remind me of what the Lord had done for me and dying for me and saving my soul. And it's through the mercies of God that I desire to be where I am today. And dear believer, that is to be our response whenever we think of what God has done for us. Our response ought to be, Lord, what can I do for you after all that you've done for me? The question comes perhaps, how do we surrender to God? How do we fulfill our conduct to God? And to this I just want to bring two sub-points under our main point. Now, firstly, there is the presentation of our body in, our, in, our, in the first verse. And Paul is telling us in this verse that our bodies are to be presented as living sacrifices to God. You may wonder, what does this mean? I think it's interesting, those two words, uh, living and sacrifice. And yet they're found in this verse in unity. Whenever you consider the meanings of such words, there is a contrast. There's a, they're, they're different from one another. Because sacrifice indicates giving something up, maybe giving up a life. And there's a sense perhaps of sacrifice, there's a sense of dying. And yet in this verse, we have the sense of being something that is living. This is something that seems perhaps maybe confusion, uh, confu confusing. But this can only make sense whenever we consider what the Christian life is to consist of. It is to be dying to self and living unto righteousness. It is to be as Christ exhorted that we take up our cross and we follow Christ. The person who took up the cross was a person that was never going to return the cross from whence he got it because he picked up the cross to die on the cross. It would be another that would have to return the cross from whence he got it. And believer in conversion, we took up the cross of Christ because the Spirit within us gave us the desire that we are to die to self and to live for Christ, to put to death our sins and the old man, that we would walk in newness of life. We are to be living sacrifices unto God, those who are dying to self and living for God, 
Those who are giving up the sinful ways to follow after righteousness and holiness. And really that also is repentance. Repentance is giving up. Repentance is giving up our sins to God. Giving up ourselves to God and surrender to say, just as the hymn writer penned those words, Just as I am, thy love unknown has broken every barrier down. Now to be thine, yea, thine alone. O Lord, the Lamb of God, I come. Our bodies are to be entirely surrendered to God. That is, we are not to use our tongue unlawfully to speak evil of others, to curse and to take the Lord's name in vain. Our eyes must guard from seeing things in which they are not to see. Our hands must be uh, prevented from being an unlawful striker or to use ungodly, irreverent, and unholy symbolism. If you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6. And really in this portion as we read it together, we see here how our bodies are to be in subjection to God. First Corinthians chapter 6 and the verse 18. We read there, flee fornication. Every sin that a, that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We're not to be our own. We are God's. We belong to him. We belong to him in creation as he is our creator. And dear believer, God has a twofold ownership over us. Not only in, not only in creation, but also in the fact that he is our redeemer. And that's, what God, that's what Paul lays out for us here. That we are bought with a price. We are bought with his own blood. He bought us with his own blood. We are his and we are not our own. And many believers believe that salvation is just a license to sin, to do whatever you want, to live whatever way you want to do because you'll not face condemnation at the end of the road. Believing that they won't give an account before God because you'll never be condemned. Well, yes, you won't be condemned. We know that. The scriptures teach that. The believer will not be condemned because Christ's righteousness is sufficient and it is enough and it is eternal. But I am sure you will have to answer about your works. How have you lived? How have you lived for Christ in this world? And perhaps even to answer the question, why is your works as hay and stubble and not as gold and silver? Now, I want to bear in mind that our works are not foundational in regards to salvation. But I refer to a judgment for the believer that you read of in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 16. And there our works are tried in the fire. And your works will either be silver or gold, or they will be hay and stubble. And they'll be tested in the fire. And you know what happens when the hay meets the fire. It is consumed in an instant. 
that our works are to be silver and gold, that they would be purified, that they will last, that they would appear uh, desirable in the eyes. So we've seen here already, we've seen the presentation of our body. Then second, uh, our second sub-point, our, the purity of our bodies. The purity of our bodies. Our bodies are to be living sacrifices to God, but they are to be holy and acceptable unto God. And the word holy means blameless or sacred, to be morally pure. This word focuses both on our outward and our inward appearance. Can we ask at this stage of the service, are we holy? Are we blameless? Are we pure and are we, uh, are we morally pure? We can never reach that definition on this side of eternity. But is that our desire? Is it our desire that we would live those lives that are pure, that are blameless, that are morally pure? Do we pray to God with that longing and desire, Lord, make me holy as thou art holy? I think of the verse of a hymn which reads, Called unto holiness, church of our God, purchase of Jesus redeemed by his blood, called from the world and its idols to flee, called from the bondage of sin to be free. Holiness also means to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be separated from the ways of the world. And this leads on to how we are acceptable unto God. And the word acceptable means something that is agreeable to God, that which is agreeable to God. Perhaps we should ask ourselves the question, if we're not living holy to God, how is that acceptable to God? How does God even agree with how you live? Does God agree with how you live? Does God approve in the ways in which you live? We are to live lives with this thought in mind. Does God agree with all that we say, all that we do, and even our own deeds and desires? Does God agree with it? Does God say that it is acceptable in his sight? Does even God's word say that it is acceptable? Why is it that we are to give ourselves to God? Why is, it, why is it that our bodies are to be in subjection to God? Why is it that we are to be pure? The end of the first gives that answer just because it is our reasonable service. It's our reasonable service. And the word reasonable has the meaning of that which is rational, that which is logical. And the word service also has the meaning of worship. It is a logical way, in other words, to worship God. That we are to be holy. That we are to be separate in serving God. And I want to say that if we are to truly worship the Lord, it has to be done in these matters that we've considered True worship is given over completely to God and the casting away of self. True worship is not about us. True worship is where our minds are not focused upon who we are or what we're facing, but it's focused on God, to get our eyes upon God. We spent a week in the world and yet we set aside this day because God commands it that we are to be holy unto the Lord. And we do so with the desire that we want to see God. We want to hear God. We want to be instructed of God. We want God to lead us. 
That is why we sing unto the Lord. That is why we pray unto the Lord. That is why we read none other book but God's book, God's word. This service is not about me or anyone else but God, but Christ and all that he has done for us. That's true worship. That's true worship. It's that, as we've already said, that dying to self and a desire to see God, to worship him and to give ourselves to God, that he may bless us. True worship requires us to be given over to God, to have our bodies in subjection to God and to have that heart that is pure in his sight. And even as I think about these things as well, there's something to bear in mind for those who are not saved. We've seen that the Christian's conduct involves being holy and acceptable unto God. And dear sinner, I want to say this, despite your attendance here, you do not stand holy and acceptable unto God because your heart is far from God. God does not accept or agree in how you live because they are against God. They are offenses against God. God does not tell you to go about in your sin. God commands you to repent from your sin, to turn from your evil and wicked ways, and to cleave to the righteousness of Christ, which alone is agreeable and acceptable unto God. God will not condescend to your ways. God cannot contradict himself. He is holy. He is pure. And God does not agree with your ways because he declares that they are morally wrong and that they are offensive to him. And that is why the scriptures are true, that we must repent from our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you indeed, through trusting in Christ, would then be made holy and acceptable and agreeable to God, not because of you, but because in salvation, God puts Christ's perfect life in your heart and soul and puts it in your account so that God can say that you are holy and acceptable unto him. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you tasted of his holiness, of his purity? And do you have that living and reigning in your heart? In salvation, God gives to the believer that which is pure, that which is perfect and acceptable and agreeable in his sight. Notice secondly with me as well, and finally, the Christian's conduct to the world. The Christian's conduct to the world. And we look particularly in the verse 2 of Romans chapter 12. And there we read, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul really continues on in this exhortation to exhort us that we're not to be conformed to this world. And the word conformed in the Greek is also used only one other time in the New Testament in 1 Peter 1:14, And there we read the apostle Peter saying these words, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. And as that phrase, fashioning yourselves according to, which is the same Greek word that we get the word here in verse 2 as conformed. So Paul is telling us in Romans that we're not to be conformed 
or fashioned according to the world. And even the word world also has the meaning of age. We're not to be conformed or fashioned according to this world or to this age. This is the danger uh, that we as believers can face of being like the world, being like our present age, following the trends of the world and to be far away from God, far from what God would have us to be, far from the required conduct of the Christian. We're not to be conformed or fashioned according to this world. I like what John Flavel says in one of his works. He says that it is as dangerous living in ill company as breathing in an infectious air. For as one observes well, no pest does sooner infect the air than sin infects and defiles the mind. It is as hard a matter to preserve yourselves from guilt among wicked men as it is to keep yourselves clean. Where many dirty dogs are leaping and fawning upon you, the diseases of the soul are very catching. How great a commendation was it to Noah that he was upright and walked with God when all flesh had corrupted their ways. And how beautiful a sight is it to see Christians shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So what is our conduct to the world to be? If we're not to be conformed to the world, then what are we to be? We are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, as it says in the first two. We are to be transformed. We're to be changed. The Greek word is the same word that is used to speak of Christ when he was transfigured. He was radically changed. To be transfigured is to be changed into something that is wonderful, that is beautiful. The Greek word is actually the word meto, metamorpho, which is where we get a bit of a tongue twister of a word, which I hope I can say now. Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. And really a frog goes through that stage. That is a radical change. You think of a frog, it starts off as a tadpole with just a tail. And how it goes through this process and then gets four legs. It changes from having gills that can only breathe underwater to have lungs that can breathe in air. It also changes in appetite because as a tadpole it only ate plants. But through the change it now can eat animals. So that means the whole digestive system changes. It is a complete change. If you were to bring the two together you wouldn't think that one would become the other. These, of course, are not simple changes. They are very complex changes. They're obvious changes. They're miraculous changes, which no one can explain. And the same is to be applied to the Christian. We're not what we used to be. At least we should not be what we used to be. And if you're a true Christian, there, there has to be a complete change in your life. And if there has been no change, there has been, if there has been no desire to follow after God, no interest in praying, no interest in getting into God's word and to know more about him, I wonder if you're saved. Or perhaps maybe you're backslidden. I cannot see how upon believing in Christ and coming to the knowledge of Christ and realizing everything that God has done for us that it will not change your life. I don't see how that can be. 
especially whenever in conversion the Holy Ghost is given to the believer who molds us after the image of Christ. And this change is not something in which a person can just decide to do. It is the work of God. It is a radical change in the person's life. And this is done by the renewing of the mind. Our mind is renewed. It is renovated. It is restored onto a good state of repair. The word renewing is also used one other time in Titus 3, verse 5, where we read, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. This is the Holy Spirit's work. He renews us. He renews our minds. He renews our understanding. He renews our intellect and our morals. Before we were ever saved, we called evil good and good evil. But through what Christ has done for us, we've been changed. We acknowledge that God's word is true. We acknowledge what God says is good is good. And what God says is evil is evil. That is why we must not be conformed to, the, to this present age and to this world. You might ask, why are we to be separate from the world and to its ways? Why are we to be conformed to this world? Or why, we, why are we not to be conformed to this world and to the present age? As our text seeks to show us, it is so that we can prove God, to prove his perfect and good will, to prove God. We are to be transformed. And the devil may say to us, oh, you'll miss out. You'll lose friends. You'll lose popularity. You'll be left out. And that may be so. But let me tell you this, believer, would you not rather lose all those things than lose the enjoyment of your union in Christ? As the hymn writer said those words, take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but his love abideth ever through eternal years the same. Let me ask you, do you seek to show forth Christ? Do you prove God in how you live? Many Christians can testify of the world saying of them, there's something different about you. The world may see that you're different. They may know you're different. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives and abides within you and is changing you. Dear Christian, are you proving God in how you live? Does your life preach Christ? Does your words and actions prove Christ? People in this world are watching us and observing us. They definitely will whenever they hear that you are a Christian. A Christian to them is such an alien thing. It's something that they're curious about. How do they live? What do they say? What do they do? And some may come to a bad conclusion if you're not living as you ought to be. But they might say that they're a better Christian than you. And call you a hypocrite. Or they may conclude if you're living as you should. That there is something good within them. That they have something that I don't have. That I need to have. One of the greatest questions that is asked in the scriptures is what think ye of Christ? 
I want to ask you, dear believer, what think ye of the world? What do you think of the world? Does it fascinate you? Or does it grieve you? If you think that you can come to church and act holy and then leave and act like the world, that God finds you acceptable, you're wrong. How can God approve that you live like those who are his enemies? As he says in James 4, verse 4, that whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And if that doesn't scare you, I don't know what will. To stand as an enemy of God. To stand as an enemy of the most high, the most holy, the most righteous and perfect. Maybe this morning God is giving you a wake-up call. That perhaps your life is not what it should be. And the devil may say to you that perhaps it's too late. It's not too late. It's only too late whenever your life has been lived. And I want to ask you this morning, will you reconsecrate yourself to him to live in full obedience? To be a man or woman of God's word. Our conduct to God, as we've seen at the first point, is foundational. Our conduct to God will then determine our conduct to the world. Because if we've got our conduct to God right, that we're living holy and acceptable lives unto God, then we're already different from the world. We're not conformed to the world because the world doesn't want to be conformed, or rather to be holy and acceptable unto God. That's why Paul starts off with our conduct to God, what it should be. And through that, then our conduct to the world will be right. When our conduct to God is right, everything else will fall into place. The person that is given over to God will seek to live a life that is holy, that is pure, that is acceptable, that is agreeable to God, that is transformed from the ways of the world. May the Lord even help us to live those lives which are consecrated to him. May our lives truly be those which are given over to God, which is holy and acceptable unto God. Why? It's because it's our reasonable service. It is what God requires of us. And as believers, that's something that's important to us, to follow what God would have us to be. Let us close our meeting in a, in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank thee for this time that has been set aside for thee for the consideration of thy word. I do pray that, Lord, thou wouldst take and use what has been of thyself this morning. Lord, I do pray that, not, that every single one of us would be challenged by the words that has been considered. That even this very moment would be a call of self-examination a call of self-examination to ask ourselves, are we what we should be? And Lord, we think of even the psalmist that prays that heart-searching prayer, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Lord, should there be that we cannot see a wicked way in us, we pray that thou would search our hearts and show it to us. Give us help, Lord, to repent from it, to flee from it, to live lives which are consecrated unto thee. Think of that verse which Christ said to his disciples, 
By this shall all men know that thou art my disciples, if ye have love one toward another. Lord, as believers, it is our desire that we would want all men to know that we are thy disciples. Lord, help us to be consecrated unto thee. Lord, we may feel stirred even now to cast away the things of sin, but Lord, we know that perhaps maybe within the next day, that will fade away. Lord, we pray against that. We pray that this would burn within our hearts, that we would desire to be those that are given over to thee, that our lives are consecrated to thee, that our lives are holy, pure, sacred unto thee, and that our lives are agreeable, that even as it were, as we live our lives, that even the angels of heaven would say their amens to how we live and how we speak. Give us help, O God. We think of even Romans 7, where Paul confesses the struggles of battling against sin. Give us the victory, we pray. Give us the victory over every temptation and the battles that we face over our sin. Help us to be righteous and pure. Lord, we pray that the world would see Christ in us. Lord, we don't want individuals to see our sins and our failures. We want them to see Christ. May Christ be our all. Lord, we pray that would give us traveling mercies in our separate ways home. We pray that even though it's Help us to return here in safety for the gospel service. We pray for that even now, that I would bring in the unconverted and the backsliders, that even this night they would see Christ and come to know thee, whom to know is life eternal. And that even we as believers would, be, would rejoice in what a wonderful Savior that we have and rejoice to hear of all that God has done for us. So Lord, we pray, give us traveling mercies. Watch over us, we pray, through the afternoon. And help us, Lord, to live lives that are holy unto thee. In Jesus' name, amen.